We're now in the concluding chapter of the book of Job, concluding message in this ongoing series of sermons. I want to ask you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. Listen carefully as I read from God's holy and inspired word this morning. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and, I, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. My servant Job shall pray for you and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. The Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all of the land there were no women so beautiful as, as Job's daughters. Their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. And this is the word of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I like stories that end on a high note and a happy note. This past year, I decided it would be a good idea to read some classical fiction I ended up choosing two books that turned out to be somewhat sad and tragic. The first one was Pearl Buck's novel, The Good Earth. The second one was Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And although I enjoyed reading both of these books, the truth is that they left me feeling a bit depressed. They left me feeling as though, I, as though there should have been a happier ending, wishing that things had turned out better. You know, there's something deep in the human heart that craves a happy ending. And here in the book of Job, we are relieved to get one. Especially considering all this man has endured. Losing his family, losing his possessions, his health, his dignity. As we consider the concluding chapter in this book this morning, this happy ending to Job's bitter trial, we are going to see, first of all, Job's repentance in verses 1-6. to Secondly, God's rebuke in verses 7 to 9. And finally, God's restoration of Job in verses 10 to 17. 
And with God's help, we're going to be reminded this morning that even though many stories of suffering do not end on a happy note in this life or in this earth, the person who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord can be confident of a happy ending to the ultimate story that our God has written. Let's look first of all, Job's repentance in verses 1-6. to I'm going to reread those verses. I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Over the course of our past two studies in the book of Job, we have come to understand that even though this man was not suffering as a result of some terrible sin he had committed against God, he did sin against God in the depths of his suffering. In his desire to defend himself, his desire to vindicate himself against the unfair accusations of his friends, Job came to the point of deciding that his reputation was more important than God's reputation. And as a result of this, self-righteous pride began to well up in his heart, and Job began to speak out against God, to suggest that God was not ruling the world with perfect wisdom and with perfect justice. Over the course of his trial, Job begins to blaspheme God with his mouth, and it was this sinful speech that prompted a young man named Elihu to storm onto the scene with words of anger towards Job and his friends. Job's correction, Job's spiritual restoration begins with Elihu's speech, but it culminates with the appearance of God Himself in chapter 38, suddenly appearing to Job and speaking to Job out of the storm. Job has been picking a fight with God. And now God steps into the ring and challenges Job to a wrestling match, telling him to dress for action like a man. God in His grace and mercy is going to intervene in the situation before Job goes too far in his sin. An example of God's tough love for His children, the fact that God chastens those He loves and scourges every son He receives. In the beginning, it was Job who was asking all the tough questions of God. But God has now turned the tables on Job. He's asked a few questions of His own with the goal of humbling Him, of putting Him back in His rightful place. Chapters 38 and 39, God challenges Job's knowledge, reminding him he is a finite, fallible human being who only sees a tiny piece of the big picture. Then in chapters 40 and 41, God challenges Job's power, reminding him he is completely helpless to hold back behemoth and leviathan, the forces of chaos and evil that continuously threaten God's good creation. God's goal in this contest is to humble Job, to reveal his lack of knowledge, to reveal his lack of power, not in order to belittle him or to mock him, but rather to bring this man to a closer relationship with God than he had ever known before. Well, God's wrestling match with Job goes on for two rounds, and each round of the contest finishes with a response from Job. Job's first response to God comes in verses 3-5 to of chapter 40. Here's what he says. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. The first round of this wrestling match reduces Job to silence. And as a result, he now promises not to speak any more ignorant and blasphemous words against the Lord. 
There is real progress here in the narrative as Job is being humbled, but the first words he speaks to God in chapter 40 fall short of full and genuine repentance. In chapter 40, Job promises not to say anything more, but you'll notice he does not retract anything that he said. He does not recant of anything that he's spoken. And that's the reason why God steps into the ring a second time. Because the goal here is not to silence Job, but rather to bring Job to the place of genuine repentance, to bring Job to the place of genuine sorrow and contrition for sin. And that is precisely what happens at the conclusion of the second round as we hear Job's second and final response to the Lord here in chapter 42, verses 1-6. to Over the years, some of the readers of this final chapter have gotten a bit confused by Job's repentance, and they've interpreted this development in the narrative as Job giving in to the advice of his three friends who've been admonishing him over and over again to repent of his sins. What we need to understand here is that Job is not repenting of any alleged sin he committed before the trial began. He is not giving in here to the foolish advice of his three friends, nor is he trying to use repentance as a tool to manipulate God in order to get his stuff back. If that were the case, this final chapter describing Job's repentance and restoration would undermine the entire point of the book. It would actually serve to vindicate the foolish advice, the misapplied theology of his friends. No, here in chapter 42, Job is repenting of sins he committed during the trial, and he is doing so with no expectation that God will restore his fortunes or that God will bless him as a result. Job is responding in humility to the rebuke of Elihu, and he is also responding to the far more powerful reproof of the Lord. He's been brought to realize that he crossed the line. He is now ready to return to the fear of the Lord, which is the starting point for true wisdom. And so the repentance that we witness and observe here from Job in chapter 42 is genuine repentance that is pleasing and honoring to the Lord and not the false pretense of a person who wants to manipulate God for his blessing. There's much that we Christians need to learn from Job's humble repentance. I think it's important that we pause at this point and consider exactly what it means to repent before God and why repentance is absolutely necessary for a relationship with God. It was a time when the doctrine of repentance dominated all evangelical teaching and preaching. There was a time when evangelical preachers would declare without hesitation, without apology, the total depravity of man, the sinful corruption of the human heart that separates humanity from a holy and a righteous God. There was a time when men and women were told they needed to come to God on His terms. But today the popular message is that God will come to us on our terms. The North American church is bought into a man-centered gospel of self-esteem and instead of declaring God's command for all men everywhere to repent, we now prefer to speak of all the ways a relationship with Jesus will make our lives here on earth more comfortable, more pleasant. Come to Jesus, you won't be lonely anymore. Come to Jesus, your life will improve. Come to Jesus, he'll fix your marriage. Come to Jesus, he'll help you with your depression. We've constructed in our minds a God who exists almost solely for the happiness and the well-being of human beings. We have lost sight of the God revealed in Holy Scripture, the God who created humanity for His own glory, the God who has been working throughout history to demonstrate and reveal His grace, the God who rescues lost and helpless sinners to the praise of His glory, lowering us into the very dust so that He might raise us up to heavenly places with Christ. 
And I'm not sure that many who have embraced this man-centered gospel of self-esteem would know what to make of Job's lamentation in verse 6, his sorrowing over sin. Therefore, Job says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and in ashes. The modern psychologist would certainly see Job as a man in desperate need of psychotherapy. But as Christians, we understand and we know this is a man genuinely broken over sin. A man who understands how offensive sin is in the eyes of a God who is perfectly holy. A God who is perfectly righteous. A God who has no blemish. Brothers and sisters, there is a desperate need in our day to recapture a biblical understanding of sin that will lead to biblical expressions of repentance. There can be no salvation unless there is repentance over sin. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said for they shall be comforted. And until we come to see our sin as it really is, we will never be brought to saving faith because peace with God is not possible without a turning from sin. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a turning from sin. It is a forsaking of sin. And if you want to embrace Jesus as Savior, you must submit to Him as Lord. You must turn away from your sins. And once you know Him, once you belong to Jesus, Repentance becomes part of the normal Christian life. A continual forsaking of sin. A continual putting of sin to death by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. And so Christian friends, understand from the example of our brother Job, repentance is an ongoing part of your relationship with God. It is not merely the beginning of your relationship with God. Notice also in our text, Job's repentance does not begin with Job's initiative but with God's initiative. Job has allowed sinful pride to get a foothold in his life. He has put himself on the same moral plane as God, even suggesting at times that he is morally superior to God. If you read this narrative carefully, you will see it was God who took the initiative to humble Job. It is God who leads Job back to repentance. I say to you on the authority of God's Word, this is always the way it is when it comes to sin and repentance. Left to our own devices, we Christians would certainly wander away from our God. We would get stuck once again in the mire and the muck of sin. The hymn writer once put it, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You see, friends, it is not our human resolve and our self-discipline that keeps us on the narrow pathway to heaven. It is God's grace and it is God's grace alone. God saw His servant Job was struggling, wandering off the path of righteousness. In His grace, He takes the initiative to call this man back to obedience, to exercise firm but loving discipline in the life of His dearly loved child. Little wonder then, the New Testament consistently describes repentance as a gift from God, just as faith is a gift from God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 tells us it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Acts chapter 11, 18, 2 Timothy 2, 25 tell us that repentance leading to life is something that God grants, not something we humans conjure up through our own strength and power. Brothers and sisters, in the light of this truth, let us continually look to our God for the grace we need to continue walking on the road of faith, recognizing that the one who first granted us the grace we needed to repent and believe will also grant us the grace that we need to keep going to persevere firm to the end. 
Job's repentance was initiated and enabled by God. Notice secondly that Job's repentance is specific. In the opening verses of chapter 42, you will observe Job quotes directly from God and then responds directly and specifically to each each accusation. That is a model for our lives too. Not to deal in vague generalities with God, but to be specific about the sins we struggle with. To be specific in prayer when we confess and when we turn away from our sin. Notice thirdly, Job's repentance is without any excuse, without any self-justification. If you are anything like me, you will probably realize that sin in our lives is easy to justify and excuse. We sometimes shrug off sinful patterns of behavior, blaming it on our personality, blaming it on other people around us, coming up with a list of reasons why we are justified to continue in our sin without confessing it and turning away from it. But Job models for us in this text what true repentance looks like, not making excuses for himself, not shifting the blame onto those who hurt him, Rather, taking responsibility for his own words. Taking responsibility for his own actions without excuse. Without self-justification. Observe finally, Job's repentance is demonstrated by its fruits, by its result. John the Baptist will later command God's people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because genuine repentance always goes beyond mere words. Talk is cheap as they say. Repentance leads to real change in our lives. Repentance is a turning around. It's a change of heart that leads to a change in behavior. And so understand this morning, friends, there is a big difference between repentance and remorse or regret. Regret and remorse are human emotions that come to us whenever we get caught in our sin, whenever we are forced to deal with the negative results of our sin. Almost everyone feels regret and remorse over the negative consequences of sin, but repentance is different than remorse. Repentance results in genuine sorrow for sin, a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. And here in the case of Job, we can easily see his repentance was demonstrated by spiritual fruit. In Job's case, there is real sorrow over sin, not merely superficial regret and remorse. Job's repentance also results in a noticeable difference in his relationship with God, as we discover in verse 5. I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. That might be the most important sentence in the final chapter, as Job is led through his repentance to a more profound knowledge of God. The difference between hearing about God secondhand and experiencing God firsthand for yourself. Zelai, who taught us a few chapters ago, God uses adversity and suffering, even discipline, to open our ears, to get our attention so that we emerge from our trials even closer to the Lord than when we first entered them. This is why we Christians can consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds because we know that God will use the trial to refine us and to draw us closer to Himself. But perhaps the greatest evidence that Job's repentance is a genuine work of God's grace comes through his willingness to forgive the people who had hurt him. After confessing to God, after repenting of his own sin, God tests Job in a very interesting way. God asked Job to pray for his three friends to offer a sacrifice on their behalf. The reason that God asked Job to do this is to reveal the true state of his heart. 
Because a person who has been truly forgiven of sin by God cannot help but to forgive the sins of others. It's the same doctrine we find later on in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches us to say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Whenever somebody hurts us in some way, the natural human response is to get even with that person. But the penitent Christian who knows God's forgiveness and grace will be willing to extend that grace to others to forgive others even as God in Christ has forgiven us. In his new and excellent book, Hidden Christmas, Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian has a wonderful quotation on repentance. discovered it in my reading this week and it fits so well with what we've been discussing so far. Repentance, Keller says, is like antiseptic. You pour antiseptic onto a wound and it stings, but it heals. That's how repentance works. Repentance creates terrible inner turmoil because you have to admit things you don't want to admit. You have to acknowledge weakness you don't want to acknowledge. However, that's the only way to the new peace of forgiveness and reconciliation. And it undermines your pride and self-righteousness, a terrible burden for you to bear as well as for those around you. There's no way to get into the new peace that repentance brings without going through the pain. Well, after dealing with Job's sin, after graciously leading Job back to repentance, God turns his attention in verses 7 to 9 to Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And here's what he says. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Notice first of all, although God sharply rebukes these three men for the words they've spoken to Job, He does not have a single negative word to speak against Elihu. An indication, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that Elihu spoke to Job with greater wisdom than his elders, that he spoke to Job in a way that represented God accurately. This is in contrast to the accusation God brings against these men in verse 7. The fact that they have not spoken of him what was right as Job had. Although Job had indeed spoken sinfully against God, our text makes it clear he did not sin against the Lord in the same way that his friends did. Job sinned by pridefully calling God's justice and wisdom into question, but these men have sinned by misrepresenting God and misrepresenting Him in a way that supports the original accusation brought forth by Satan in the first chapter of the book. You recall, I hope, Satan's original statement to God, his contention, righteous people like Job only worship God because He makes their life easy and not because God Himself is worthy to be worshipped and treasured and adored. This is really the main problem of the book. God's honor is on the line. And Job has been put forward as a test case to prove that Satan is wrong. To prove that righteous men really do worship and treasure God for who He is. As the narrative begins to unfold, Job starts off well, but his friends do not. 
Once these three men start talking, they quickly twist and distort a biblical principle about God in a way that supports Satan's accusation. To their credit, these three men believe strongly in the principle of divine justice, and that's a good thing. But sadly, their application of this biblical principle, the Job situation, is both destructive and even demonic. Because in essence, these men are suggesting that God can be manipulated for His blessing and favor. They presented a portrait of God that diminishes His glory. A portrait of God that brings Him down to the level of pagan idols where the gods can be manipulated and controlled by the actions and the whims of human beings. And had Job followed the advice of his friends, had Job expressed remorse in order to gain God's blessing and favor, Satan's theory would have been proven true. This is the reason why God's anger burns against these three men. They have misapplied good theology. They have misrepresented God by calling His ultimate worth into question. They have bought into the satanic lie that God can be manipulated. And they have encouraged Job to do the same. One lesson I think we all need to take away from this text, God's rebuke of these men, is the realization that our God cares deeply about theology. Theology matters to God, and especially the way that our patterns of thought and speech reflect upon His glory and His character. God cares deeply what thoughts of Him fill our minds. He cares what words about Him come out of our mouths. He cares whether those thoughts and those words actually correspond to the way that He has revealed Himself. Pages of inspired Scripture. The person of His Son, Jesus Christ. I can tell you with confidence this morning, brothers and sisters, any man-centered theology that minimizes the glory of God in order to boost the human ego is an abomination and an offense to God. If God's anger burned against the prosperity theology of Job's friends, you can be sure His anger still burns against every false theology, every false ideology that robs Him of His glory and misrepresents Him to the world. Let me also say this morning, this application point strikes particularly close to home for me as your pastor. Because of my responsibility, my calling to regularly teach and preach the Word of God with the authority of God. The task of preaching is a tremendous privilege. There's no greater privilege than preaching the Word of God. It is also a great responsibility. And it's a responsibility that often weighs heavy upon me as I think about the words of James in the third chapter of his epistle. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, to pray for me to pray for all of the other elders and teachers in this church as we prepare sermons and Bible studies and lessons on a weekly basis. Please know I covet your prayers as I prepare each week to minister the Word of God because my ultimate aim and goal in the ministry is to exalt Jesus Christ through the accurate exposition and application of Holy Scripture. God cares deeply about theology. He cares about my theology. He cares about your theology. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He's absolutely right. The most important thing about you is not how much money you make, not how much education you have, how attractive you are, how talented you are, whether you're married or single. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. What thoughts fill your mind when you think about God? 
And I want to urge you by way of application this morning, continually test your theology against the inspired Word of God. Allow God's self-revelation in the Scripture to inform your thinking about God and to correct any distortions and errors that may have crept into that way of thinking. Whatever comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, God rebukes Job's friends to correct their faulty theology. The passage before us makes it clear God required a sacrifice for sin to be offered by a priest, someone who would mediate and intercede on their behalf. In this case, God's appointed priest was none other than Job, the very man that these three men had wronged. Friends, there's an important lesson in this detail for you and for me today. God's Word says that the wages of sin is death. And because our God is totally just by nature, He requires that restitution be made for sin if we are to be forgiven and restored into a right relationship with Him. This is the reason for animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. It's a symbolic action showing how terrible sin is, how seriously God takes our sin. It's the life of an innocent animal being substituted for the life of a guilty sinner. And so when God instructs Job to function as a priest for his friends, he is not only testing the genuineness of Job's repentance, he is also teaching us about a greater deliverer who is yet to come. A man who would be more righteous than Job. A man who would suffer more than Job. A man who would be mistreated and rejected and betrayed by his closest friends and relatives. A man who would intercede for his enemies on the cross, who would ask God to forgive them. A man who would go to the cross of Calvary and die in their place for their sins. Job is an Old Testament type. He's an Old Testament shadow pointing us towards the great deliverer who is yet to come as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The ultimate high priest. And if you will repent of your sins, if you will believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior God has appointed, if you will cast yourself fully on His mercy, His grace, you too can be saved and forgiven. You will be brought into a right relationship with this holy God. And as your great high priest, Jesus will intercede for you. He will defend you against the accusations of the enemy. He will enable you to withstand the whirlwind of God's judgment that is yet to come upon this earth. In a marvelous way, these events that happened some 2,000 years before the coming of Christ point us towards Him and the plan and the salvation that only He can give. Because God's Word says there is salvation in no one else. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Well, in closing, let's look briefly at Job's restoration in verses 10 to 17. I'm not going to delve into any detailed analysis of these verses this morning because I think the point of the text is very plain and clear. Job's story has a happy ending. We read in these concluding verses that God has restored Job's health. He has doubled Job's possessions. He has restored Job's dignity. He filled Job's house with children and family. He's even extended Job's life for many years. This terrible, this seemingly hopeless ordeal of suffering ends on a high note. And what makes Job's restoration even more sweet is the fact that Job understands it is all a gift of God's grace that is totally undeserved. Unlike his three friends who thinks that God's blessing and prosperity is something that God owes to the righteous for good deeds, Job understands that God owes him nothing. 
the reality is that in His kindness and grace, God gives us many good things to enjoy in this life. Many things, in fact, that you and I take for granted every day. You don't realize what a precious gift your voice is until you lose it on Sunday morning. You don't realize what a gift your health is until it's suddenly taken from you. You don't realize how precious your family is until someone you love passes away. You don't realize how valuable your freedom and liberty are until you turn on the news and you see pictures of a country that is being torn apart by civil war. God does not owe us anything, brothers and sisters. Not one little thing. But in His kindness, in His grace, God gives us many things to enjoy. And through the painful ordeal Job has come to understand God's grace, I can guarantee you, he never looked at his health, he never looked at his possessions, he never looked at his family the same way ever again. But even as we rejoice in Job's restoration, even as we savor a happy ending to this story, we need to keep in mind today, not every story of suffering has a happy ending. Not every Christian who is stricken with an illness will get up off their bed again. Not everyone who loses their possessions will gain twice as much in return. Not everyone who loses dignity for the sake of Christ will regain it. It's not in this life. If you come to the end of this book and you see Job's final restoration as a normal pattern that you and I can expect when we face hardship and adversity in life and in this world, I am afraid you have missed the point of the book. If that is your conclusion from this final chapter, you have actually fallen prey to the false prosperity theology of Job's three friends. Not every story of suffering has a happy ending in this life and in this world. That's a fact. That is a reality that we must come to grips with. We must face up to it. We must accept it. Even Job had to come to grips with the fact that a house full of new children would never replace the ones that died. There are some things in life that can never be replaced. There are some painful memories, some experiences that can never be forgotten. And we carry around the scars of those things for our entire lives. But for those of us who know Christ, there is good news. Because the ultimate happy ending is yet to come. And no matter what happens in this life, either for good or for evil, the final chapter in God's story has been written from eternity past. It has been decreed. It cannot be changed no matter what comes to pass in this world. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, there is no trial, there is no adversity, there is no enemy in this life that can change or take away from you the happy ending that God has promised. And so friends, if you really want to know God's final answer to the problem of evil and suffering in this life, you need to turn to the last page in your Bible where we read these words. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. And He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. 
there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And isn't that good news for us today? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And ask the men to come forward at this time as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table together.